nice to see all of you. If you don't know me, my name is Joel Repick. I'm lead pastor here at Crestmont Alliance Church. And if you're visiting or if you're newer to the church, I haven't had the opportunity to meet you yet. I would love to have the opportunity to meet you eventually. So please, if you see me around, say hi. That would be great. I have another announcement. Um, I just want to let you all know that immediately following the service today, in the Crestmont Cafe, which is just on the other side of the back wall of the sanctuary here, we'll be having a baptism class. Um, at Crestmont, baptism is an outward sign of an inward change. Um, it's a way to publicly say, I'm a follower of Jesus, and it symbolizes uh, you know, Jesus joining you to his worldwide family. And so if you've never been baptized, we would love to talk to you about that. We will actually be baptizing some folks next Sunday during our worship service. So we can always add more into that. So if you've never been baptized, we encourage you um, to take this step of faith and obedience. I'd love to explain to you more. And so immediately following the service, we'll have a 20-minute class or so um, on the meaning of baptism, and it'll give me the opportunity to give you some practical instructions and to talk through some things with you. So I hope you'll join us for that, if that's you. Uh, you just heard our 100th anniversary being announced. I keep saying it, but I'm so excited for that weekend, and I really am just full of anticipation that God is going to speak to us that weekend. As we celebrate the past, I think God has some things to say to us about our future and so I just, I, gosh, I just want all of you there um, to join in with us, and um, I hope you can make it uh, for the event on Saturday and for both services on Sunday as well. Um, and lastly, I just wanted to mention this, this uh, Saturday, I'll be teaching this ministry track um, on the spiritual gifts, and I know that that is an area that uh, in our church some have had questions about, and it just, you know, here's things in the Sunday morning service, and they want to know more about that. We'd love for you to participate in that. And the way these ministry tracks work is if we have at least five people signed up, then we will hold the ministry track. If we don't have it, then we'll just reschedule it for a later date. So it's important that you sign up for that, and you can do that on your connection card that lets us know that you're planning on attending. And lastly, just before we get into uh, the sermon today, I just want to share with you a personal testimony of something that has been happening to me in the last couple weeks, and I think you have something to do with it, or at least some of you do, so I just wanted to give you this testimony. I have had this experience repeatedly in the last couple of weeks. Um, it's hard for me to put it into words, but all of a sudden, I will just have this deep sense that someone is praying for me. Um, sometimes it's in a ministry situation. And it just, I feel this grace come up under me um, to minister, and the thought will just come into my head, someone is praying for you. Um, or, I've experienced this in the last couple weeks, uh, my reaction to something will at first be a negative attitude, and, and, you know, my heart will respond to something in a negative way, and I'll just feel my heart shift towards holiness, just really easily and quickly, and the thought will come into my head, uh, someone's praying for you. And so I'm feeling that, and I think there's many of you here uh, that are praying for me. And I just want to thank you. That means the world to me. And I want you to know those prayers are meaning something. So thank you. Uh, to those of you who are going to the Lord on my behalf, I appreciate it. Well, today we're in John chapter 11. It's a well-known story about a man named Lazarus. Now, last week, 
I preach on a parable that Jesus tells about a man named Lazarus. That story is a fictional story that Jesus tells to make a point. And this is a real story that happened in Jesus's ministry. And actually, the two Lazaruses have nothing to do with each other. So I just don't want there to be any confusion about that. This Lazarus and his two sisters, Mary and Martha, who have already showed up in our preaching series in the last couple of years, um, are a family that is really close to Jesus. Um, it says it in the passage that we're about to read together. Jesus loves this family very much. And I think that today's passage is going to say something powerful to us about who God is, who we are, and what this means for how we deal with the emotion of sorrow. Just want to remind you that at this point in Jesus' ministry, the tensions are escalating between Jesus and the religious and political establishment of the day. And for this reason, his disciples have some safety concerns that are going to come up in this passage because, of course, Jerusalem is the seat of religious and political power in the Jewish nation, and Jesus' disciples want Jesus to steer clear of this place because they know that attentions are building. And yet, Lazarus, Mary, and Martha are in the city of Bethany, which is just a couple of miles away from the holy city, Jerusalem. And so that is where Jesus ends up going to perform this miracle, really in the shadow of those who are already plotting to take his life. I do want to read the whole passage today. but It's a long passage, but it's best if you hear it from the gospel writer himself instead of just my recollection of it. So we're going to read this whole passage. It's longer than uh, the passages that we normally read. So I'll ask you to stand to your feet. This is our custom to honor the word of God among us. And then we're going to begin in John chapter 11, verse 1. Now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. When he heard this, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's son may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. And then he said to his disciples, let us go back to Judea. But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago, the Jews there tried to stone you, and yet you were going back? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours of daylight? Anyone who walks in the daytime will not stumble, for they see by this world's light. It is when a person walks at night that they stumble, for they have no light. After he had said this, he went on to tell them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I am going there to wake him up. His disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get better. Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I am glad I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Then Thomas, also known as Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. 
Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die, and whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied, I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. After she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and he is asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who had been with Mary in the house, comforting her, noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him, he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad odor, for he has been there four days. Then Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Amen. You can take your seat. There's a lot I want to communicate to you this morning, so I'm going to stay closer to my notes than I usually do. But I want to begin just by walking us through step by step some of the dynamics that are happening in this passage so that we can answer the questions we've been answering the last few Sundays when we're together. Who is God? Who am I in light of who God is? What is God saying to me? And what am I going to do about it? So first of all, in verses 1 through 6, Jesus waits. Very surprisingly. Jesus gets word that his friend, who clearly says he loves very dearly, is on the verge of death. And rather than picking up his things and rushing off to heal his friend, instead, he waits. And Jesus states in these verses that his priority, what's deciding his timeline for him, is the glory of God. Every time we talk about God's glory in uh, Scripture, one thing we're talking about is God revealing himself, God showing himself. Everywhere his glory shows up in the Old and New Testaments, God is showing us something about who he is. And Jesus states clearly that the reason he is waiting and the reason that he's going to let Lazarus die is to show something about God's glory. It's God's glory that gets priority. I think this really challenges, doesn't it, our notions of prayer and how we think that God should work or often does work. See, one thing we don't often realize is that when we are approaching God with our problems and our needs, we often have a very limited perspective. We 
We just want the thing in front of us to be dealt with. But God has in mind a much bigger uh, picture that involves showing his glory. And this comes through very clearly in this passage. If Jesus had gone and healed Lazarus, his glory would have been revealed, like his glory was revealed in every healing or deliverance that he did. And yet here, as it turns out, his father has something bigger in mind. He delays the healing and turns this into a story about resurrection for a couple of reasons. First of all, God is trying to get through to Jesus' own disciples something deeper about who he is. We see that the nature of this resurrection happened in the company of many people who had gathered to mourn with Mary and Martha. And so God is interested in revealing himself in a more spectacular way in this passage. And if we had continued on reading through John chapter 11, we would see that this miracle and kind of the, uh, the surprise that circles it um, ends up reaching the ears of the religious and political leaders in Jerusalem. And this miracle is actually partly what moves Jesus closer to his own death. And it is at the cross where we most clearly see who God is, right? This miracle is amazing, but it's ultimately when Jesus dies and comes to life again that we see most clearly who God is. His glory is most revealed there. So we see that God is deeply concerned about the personal pain of Martha and Mary in this passage, but he has in mind all of these moving parts that the people who are observing this playing out can't even see for themselves. So what does Jesus do for these couple days while he's waiting? Well, we know at the end of John chapter 10 that Jesus had ventured back out into the wilderness, particularly the place where John the Baptist had been baptizing in the earliest days of Jesus's ministry. And we know this about Jesus. Very often when Jesus travels into the wilderness, he's going there. Why? To pray. So Jesus delays running off to see his friend Lazarus, and I believe instead he spends a couple of days praying, particularly, I think, asking his father, what is the strategy for this? What is it that you want to do? What is it that you want to accomplish? Jesus never did anything without hearing his father. The secret to his ministry was that he heard what his father was saying, and that's what he did. See, faith is both believing that God can do the impossible and trusting in his timeline to do it. See, if we don't think that God is bigger than our circumstance or bigger than our sorrow or bigger than our pain, then we won't have any faith at all. And God does call upon us to exercise faith in the face of the obstacles that we face, to believe that God is who he says he is, even when it doesn't feel like he is what he claims to be. But faith is more than that. It's also trusting in God's timeline. You may know this, but there's churches and pastors that talk about faith like it's a magic wand that we can just wave over our problems. Now, many of those folks, to their credit, believe maybe more than a lot of us that God is who he says he is and that he can do the impossible. And so we ought to celebrate that when we see it in other people. And yet sometimes I see people reduce faith to a formula. Well, if I have a problem, I can just say X, Y, and Z. I can just pray this prayer. We can just gather together and do this thing. And if we just do this, the problem will go away. But faith is believing in the character of God and also trusting in his timeline 
to accomplish it. There's two things at play. This is why tonight we're going to be gathering for prayer. And very rarely in our prayer meetings at Crestmont do we just make a list of everything that's wrong in the world. We could do this. Just make a list, start listing off the things that are wrong in our lives and wrong in the world and make a list and just go after it and pray magic prayers of faith to make all of this stuff go away. We've learned over the years at Crestmont, I hope you'll join us tonight to experience this, but we've learned over the years at Crestmont instead to listen together as a group of people for what the Holy Spirit wants to accomplish in prayer. See, I'm certain that tonight when we gather together, the Spirit has an assignment for us in prayer. And we hear God better when we hear him in each other. When we get into a room together and we hear how God is working in us. And God will very often surface something that we are to go after in prayer. And then faith rises up in the room for us to go after that thing. Why? Because we've begun the night in worship. Remembering who God is. And that he can do the impossible. And this is a really exciting part of prayer church is when you are side by side with your brothers and sisters and you are praying for things and seeing answers. Nothing brings more joy than when you are praying things and seeing answers. And why are we seeing answers? Because we're praying according to the timeline of God. We're praying the things that God has already decided he would do. I promise you in your prayer life, if you pray the things that God has already decided he will do, you will see a 100% answer rate in your prayer life. Jesus had a 100% answer rate in his prayer life. Why? Because he listened to what the Father was telling him to ask for, and he only asked for those things. But eventually, in verses 7 to 16, Jesus does go. The disciples challenge him because they just remind him that there's people in Jerusalem who want to take his life. They remind him of the impending danger, and Jesus responds with this language about light and darkness and stumbling in the darkness, but being able to see in the light. What Jesus is saying to them is, look, when you follow me, you are walking in the light, and you will not stumble, even if it looks like you're going right into the face of danger. See, all through this passage, Jesus is doing the unexpected. He waits instead of goes. He tells the disciples that Lazarus is sleeping, and it turns out that Lazarus is dead. At every turn, Jesus, as he listens to his father's voice, is doing things that are unexpected to them. And Thomas responds with this very melancholy word. If you know, when Thomas shows up in the scriptures, it tells us something about his personality because he's just always a pessimist. But he says, well, let us go that we may die with him. But I think the reason that John records this is because whether Thomas realized it or not, Thomas was actually saying something true and correct. See, when we started this sermon series two and a half years ago, we named it Come and Follow, Learning to Live and Love Like Jesus. We said that the primary call of Jesus is to come and follow him. Jesus is reminding the disciples of that here. Do you trust me? Do you trust me enough to follow me even into the face of what looks like danger. And what Thomas says, even if he's being sarcastic or melancholy in this passage, is true that the call of discipleship is to die. It's to die to ourselves. To die to our own thoughts about how we think things should play out. To die to our own uh, best ideas for how we think God should do things. To die to our own wills. 
Jesus says, come and follow, and we die. We choose to trust him. You know, especially in the face of sorrow, and there's so much sorrow in this passage, I find that we end up having so many questions. And, you know, in pastoral ministry, people will come up to me and ask me those questions. And it's like the more I follow Jesus, there's a strange thing. It's like the more I follow Jesus, the less sometimes I feel like I really understand or know, except that I do know more and more who he is. See, I may not know all of the plans, but ultimately God hasn't called us to trust in some plan. He's called us to trust in a person, himself. He's called us to trust in his character, even if we don't understand how things are playing out. So Jesus goes. He's some way outside of the town of Bethany. Martha hears this. She runs out to meet Jesus, and immediately what she says is, if you had been here. My brother would not have died if you had come. We wouldn't be experiencing this loss. And one commentator beautifully says that Jesus then moves to challenge her in verses 17 to 31. He moves to challenge her, to provoke her, to cause a response of faith to rise up out of her. His challenge to her is to exchange her if only for an if Jesus to exchange her, if only, a statement of regret and sorrow to a statement of hope and faith, if Jesus. So the first thing that Jesus tells her is your brother will rise again. Now, in the next few moments, what I'm going to say to you will help you immensely as you process through your own sorrow. Jesus handles this masterfully with Martha. See, sorrow often has the capacity to put us in the past and to keep us there. We experience sorrow on a certain day. We experience some kind of loss, and it makes us backward-looking people. We always look to that loss and replay that same thing again and again, and we are painfully aware that who we are today is connected to our past, whatever that loss is. I remember early on in ministry, I met someone who had experienced a terrible loss, unspeakable pain in their past, And they were describing to me this thing that had happened to them 30 or 40 years ago. And I could just tell as they were describing it to me that their growth had stopped on that day all those years ago. They hadn't taken another step with Jesus since all those years ago because they lived at that date where that sorrow happened to them. When Jesus says, your brother will rise again, He challenges Martha in the middle of her sorrow not to live in her past, but to think about the future. He says to her, this is the promise of God that the dead will rise again. Martha's response is to say, I know he will rise again in the resurrection of the last day. She's saying, Jesus, I understand the doctrine. Most Jews in Jesus' day believed in a literal resurrection that would happen in the future, that God would raise from the dead at some date in the future all of those who had died, who he had saved. And and this was a great hope for them. They believed it because there's passages in the prophets that say as much. And so she's saying, I know I believe this. I know he will be risen again someday. I believe in the resurrection. And Jesus' response to her is to say, well, I am the resurrection. So now the challenge becomes this. Basically, what he's saying to Martha is, don't live in the past with your sorrow. Instead, look to your future, and here's a new one for you. I am the one who pulls the future into your present. Your future is standing in front of you. 
I am the resurrection. Jesus' bold statement is that the resurrection is not some future event that's going to happen, but that he is bringing all of the future blessings of the kingdom of God promised in the prophets, promised in the scriptures, and is making them alive in Martha's present. What this means is that there's a capacity in sorrow, friends, not to be defined by our past, but instead to be defined by our futures. We often think that we are who we are today because of the things that happened in the past. Jesus is telling Martha, it's possible for you to be something today because of who you will be in the future. I am the resurrection and the life. And I'm standing right in front of you in this moment. Then Mary comes out in verses 32 to 37. And here we see the grief of Jesus. So this is amazing. All of this talk about the future coming into the present, we don't have to be defined by the sorrow of the past. I think our temptation would be to think then that we don't have to grieve at all in the present. That grief is silly or it's something that evidences a lack of faith. Or it's something that we should avoid. But we see something very different in Jesus when Mary comes out and she has an if-only statement as well. And she is grieving in the presence of Jesus. And then Jesus sees those around her grieving. He weeps like a baby. And this is deeply profound, church, for who God is. For who God reveals himself to be. This is the one through whom the world was created. Spun galaxies into existence. And yet he cries like a baby when his friends are grieving. Why does he do it if he knows the miracle is about to happen? Why does he do it when he's challenging faith out of the people who are sorrowful? Well, I think it's this, that walking in that future reality that defines my present actually allows me to fully engage my present without fear. See, I don't have to avoid present sorrow if I know that there's a future reality where that sorrow gets dealt with in the love of God. See, it's only when I don't believe that it's only when I don't believe that God is who he says he is and that he will make the world right again that I become afraid of the emotion of sorrow. That's an interesting statement, to be afraid of the emotion of sorrow because one of those emotions the Bible endorses, the other one the Bible never endorses. You know, the Bible never endorses anxiety. The Bible never endorses fear. You won't find any verse where it says that your response ought to be fear, you will find verses that endorse sorrow. It's a negative emotion, but it can be a very godly one. And I think very often we're so afraid to experience the full weight of sorrow. We're afraid because we're not believing who God is. We're afraid because we're unsure of our future. So we engage in a number of things to avoid the negative emotion of sorrow. Some of us become control freaks. It's like, we control our lives, our kids, our spouses, so that we never experience sorrow again in our lives. It makes us miserable people, and it's something we're not able to do anyway. No matter, guess what? No matter how much you try to control, life is going to hurt. Can I get an amen? No matter how much you try to control, people are going to let you down. You are going to experience betrayal. It doesn't matter. As it turns out, the only one you can actually control is yourself. And even the ones who are around you who 
who you love and trust in, even they will sometimes be the people who let you down. So this whole like control game, it robs us of joy in the present. It doesn't let us fully experience relationships and it doesn't even accomplish the thing that we hope it will accomplish. Some of us just deny it. You know, the longer I'm in ministry, friends, the more I grow tired of even like funerals where we can't grieve openly. What is that? What, what, kind, what kind of religion have we built where godliness looks like not engaging grief? When all throughout scriptures, the Bible is so comfortable with this emotion. It's so comfortable with the thought of sorrow and grief. And I know so many people who have stuffed down their pain so deep inside, they think that they're keeping it in, but it's actually coming out everywhere. In the relationships, in work, that grief is manifesting everywhere because they've never fully engaged it. You know, a friend of mine, he talks about how one time he was preaching on godly sorrow at a church and, and some sorrow opened up in the congregation and there was an altar call and a woman came forward and she was really grieving. I mean, having a snot cry, you know, at the beginning, at the front of the church. And now one of the elders from the church walked up to her and said, oh, that's enough, it's okay, it's okay, it's okay. You, you could not act in a way that is less like Jesus than that elder acted in that situation. Come on. What is this? Some religious game? Look, I think a healthy snot cry ought to be part of our discipleship. Come on. I mean, and, and listen, I, I'm learning more and more in ministry. Once the snot starts coming, let's just keep it real. Once the snot, once the snot starts coming... For me, it's like, I'm not going to try to cut that off at all. Let's just let a moment happen here. Because so few of us, especially religious people, so few of us have actually grieved our losses. I mean, so many Christians who don't even think they have losses. Listen, so many of us have losses. Or we try to numb it in sin. We turn to lust or to getting high or drunk to deal with this pain that we've never dealt with, or some of us just spiral in hopelessness in our grief, and somehow the only comfort that we can get is to be such a train wreck of emotion that we cause everything to be a train wreck around us. And the only way that we feel comfort is if everyone is absolutely as messed up as we are, right? All of those are an attempt to deal with sorrow in a negative way. But see, Jesus models something for us beautiful. Because he knows the future and because he's bringing the future into the present, it disempowers his fear around sorrow and he's able to fully engage that emotion without fear. Jesus gets to the tomb. He actually falls apart again in verse 38. This wave of grief comes over him again. He's weeping still. And he gets to the tomb and the details that John records here are very interesting to me. It's a good question to ask sometimes in these gospel narratives are, what are the details that did not get recorded? Because the author is making a choice to record certain details and to not record other things. And I find John's choice to be kind of odd in this passage. He records two things. First of all, that Martha makes the statement about an odor that could come out of the grave. And then Jesus makes this statement about having already prayed a prayer and knowing that God has already answered it, and then he's saying this so that people can understand what's going on. Well, I think if you connect the dots there, here is what has happened. Friends, when they took away the tomb from this grave, there was no odor. You know why? Because Lazarus had already raised 
from the dead. Jesus' prayer had already been answered. I don't know at what point, but Jesus had been praying on this for some time, and at some point while he was praying, Lazarus came back to life, and Jesus just has to say, come out of that tomb. Move the stone, come out. There's no smell anymore. And I think this says something about power, powerful about sorrow too, friends, is that when we refuse to be defined by the past, and instead we let our futures define our present, and we allow the kingdom to break in on our present, something amazing starts to happen. We do start to see where God was at work in the past too. We do start to see where God had been working all along. When my brother was in the tomb laying there and I thought he was dead, as it turns out, God was already doing something. God was already at work. He was at work in a way I couldn't even see. We begin to see how even in our darkest moments, God was at work all along. If the worship team could come forward, two of you. <laughs> it's a good team, though. Okay, so our four questions, very quickly as I wrap up. Who is God? Two things. God is a God of sorrows. You need to know this about our God. He's not uh, afraid of your grief. He has the capacity to fully engage whatever hurt it is that you carry. But you also need to know this about him. He's the resurrection and the life. See, what this means is, is that in Jesus, you have someone who will stand with you in your grief in the present, but who will also bring the future into that present. He is the resurrection. He is the one who will reverse all of this. Might be in his timeline, but he is the one who will reverse it. Listen, I, I would suggest to you, there's nobody else who can be both of these things to you. There may be, you are blessed if you can find someone who can really sit with you in your grief. I hope we're that kind of community. But you're really blessed if you find that. A lot of times we don't find it. But there's only one person who's the resurrection and the life. Where we see this most in Jesus was at the cross. He fully engaged human sorrow, not just by weeping at a graveside, but by letting sorrow come to him at the cross. And then Lazarus, he brought back from the dead, but of course Lazarus died again someday. He brought Lazarus back from the dead, but Jesus went through death. And he came out on the other side to forever live. And that's the gift that he shares with us today. So who am I? Some of you need to hear this over your problems today. I'm saying this prophetically. You are invincible in the face of sorrow. Hear me? You do not need to be afraid of sorrow. You are invincible in the face of sorrow. You do not need to be afraid of that emotion. You do not need to be afraid of uncontrollable grief. You are invincible. Because the one who is the resurrection and the life stands with you. I think there's an invitation today to just allow even the things that we've stuffed way down inside to come out into the presence of God who loves us. So what is God saying to me? Well, listen, if I'm engaging numbing pain, controlling, if I'm engaging denying pain or whatever, God is telling me that these negative reactions to pain uh, these unhealthy responses to pain that end up hurting the relationships in my life. Listen, these things tell me about my identity. I'm afraid of sorrow, and that's why I won't engage. Some of us turn to magic prayers. 
because we think that that will take care of it. And we get very disappointed when we start praying just magic prayers without hearing the Father. God very often wants to accomplish something in us. And so what am I going to do about it? Well, I can truly engage my own sorrow. Sorrow, listen, the devil wants your sorrow because he loves to attach a narrative about, to it about who you are. Loves to lie about our grief. But I want to tell you this. When you engage sorrow in the hand of a God who loves you, it is one of the most productive things on this side of glory to God accomplishing his purposes on earth. Look, if you don't believe me, look at the cross. We just read it. <laughs> look at the cross. God is so sovereign that he will even take the sorrowful things, the wrong things, death, and will accomplish his kingdom purposes out of it. And if I fully engage my own sorrow, then I can engage the world's sorrow. I really think very often we don't get on mission because we know it's going to hurt or it's just easier to deny or avoid the pain of other people. And all of that says that I haven't fully engaged my own sorrow. But see, when I can fully engage my own pain, capacity grows around me for people to also be in grief. Isn't that powerful? I become not the person. See, that, that elder who's shutting down that woman's crying, you know what that is? I can promise you that individual has unresolved grief in their own life. They're scared of sorrow, and that's why they're shutting it down in another person. But if I can truly engage sorrow, then I can weep with those who weep. Then there's room around my life for people to lament. There's room around me for a good snot cry or two because I understand what God does in this. Here's what I'd like us to do. If you'd stand to your feet, I want to say this. We are up against um, noon. And so you are free to go if you need to, but I really believe that God wants to do something. And so if you can just hang with us for a few moments, I don't want to miss this. Um, I'm going to ask the Holy Spirit to surface in us sorrow. And I do not want you to hide or to hold back. Um, it might be a memory or a past pain. And then we're going to sing this song, You Are Good, You Are Good. And, and I just want you to grieve that for a moment. I went through this season in prayer, church, when God was working on this in my life, where I started to grieve my losses in God's presence. And I was surprised at the stuff that came out. Some of it was even good stuff. I, like, I've had some big losses. But I remember one day in the prayer room back here, weeping like a baby over just how hard it was to start Alec with Impact. And that was something I really enjoyed doing. But there was a loss in it. At times I felt lonely. At times there was stress over resources. And I just found out God loved me so much that I was able to just like grieve that in his presence and name it. So Holy Spirit, would you just surface losses in us even now? We trust you. You're the God of sorrows. And you are the resurrection and the life. So would you come? Lord, would you just give us a capacity to grieve in your presence just as we sing this truth about your goodness? Lord, help us to be real with you. Listen, you may need to sing or you just may need to name your pain in God's presence. I want you to do whatever you need to do. And then Brandy is going to come and close the service.